Fiery Cries. We are your hosts, Martha Goop and Erica Switzer. You just heard Mary McKenzie, soprano, and Kathleen Tagg at the piano. They're performing one of the most frequently performed songs of American composer Samuel Barber, Sure on the Shining Night. Samuel Barber, of course, the celebrated singer-friendly and pro prolific composer of songs. We are coming to you live from Harlem in the newly opened Studio 113, and this is also, and most importantly, the very exciting launch of a brand new recital series in New York City, celebrating the art of song. Let's hear it for the Casement Fund! <laughs> something like this work truly means to me that this art is thriving. I feel like our community is pulling together and that uh, maybe in part because of the internet in a sense it is so much easier to see exactly who and what and where people are singing songs and uh, believe me these performances are happening all the time. It's good for musicians because a new song series means that we get to hire you guys and pay you money and that pays rent. <laughs> It's good for audiences because song celebrates what is embedded deep within us. One of uh, our great teachers, Runa Sharon, has said about song, from lullabies to laments, in rituals and celebrations, in diverse therapeutic environments, song expresses the fusion of human thought and feeling across the planet. It is an intercultural bridge. It reveals the commonalities of our inner beings within the, within the diversities of human society. So our performers today uh, all come from the New York City-based ensemble Song Fusion, which is dedicated to presenting a wide range of art song in innovative ways. Their mission is to expand the traditional recital formats, create programs that explore familiar themes, and collaborate with instrumentalists, dancers, actors, and visual artists. Hello. 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 <laughs> we also have a very special guest with us, Margot Garrett, my former teacher. My former dissertation advisor, among <laughs> other things. But to the world, uh, Margot has been a piano partner to singers such as Kathleen Battle, Barbara Bonney, Lucy Shelton, Don Upshaw, Benita Valente, just to name a handful. As a teacher, she has been involved as a director at the Tanglewood Music Center. She created programs for collaborative piano at the New England Conservatory, the University of Minnesota. She was also the former chair of the Saints Institute for Young Artists, their vocal program at Ravinia, and she currently teaches at the Juilliard School. Welcome, Margot. Thanks. It's great to be here tonight. I look out and see so many of you uh, whom I know from so many venues. Um, you remind me of the times of my life just as every one of these people, Song Fusion, uh, Sparks and Wiry Cries, and Studio 113 are all parts of my life from days and years uh, before tonight. So this is a very special luncheon. Thank you. So we're here to talk about Samuel Barber. And it turns out that Margot met Samuel Barber and had the opportunity to work with him. So we want to pick her brain about that. Can you tell us about when you met? 
I hate to start with uh, a negative thing in the wonderful, fascinating life of Samuel Barber, but I met him just after the opening of the new Metropolitan Opera House. Samuel Barber was commissioned to write the opera, Antony and Cleopatra, for that event. It was the biggest honor a composer could be offered in this city to open the biggest uh, gala, the final gala of the opening of Lincoln Center. And there was no one else to ask because Samuel Barber was everything to composition. He certainly was everything to song composition in that time, but there was no one else who would be more suitable, more thought of uh, to have done this than Samuel Barber. Mr. Barber, however, was um, not all about glitter and glamour, either the kind of music he wrote or the kind of person that he was. And so when the Metropolitan Opera, in all of its opulence, hired a man like Franco Zeffirelli to be the director of this opera, Zeffirelli was thinking, oh, Antony and Cleopatra, Egypt, the pyramids, Aida. <laughs> and so um, at the same time, Mr. Barber was thinking about the private, intimate relationship of two people, Antony and Cleopatra. So you can see from the beginning, there was a problem. I met Mr. Barber in 1967 and into 1968 during a time in which he was seeking refuge from construction in his home in Mount Kisco, his home called Capricorn, where he and Giancarlo Menotti lived uh, for many years house was having construction. Uh, Barber was depressed. For the first time in his compositional life, he had had a failure, an abject failure in the perception, in the um, commentary and the critique after the premiere of Antony and Cleopatra. And for a man who had been the golden boy, he had never done anything except receive the highest accolades, the highest honors all of a sudden, his life had completely changed. So this 1938 song, Sure on This Shining Night, is exactly who he was in 1938. And we'll travel with him in a very personal way through the choices of poetry that he makes. So he came to North Carolina, where he was offered at the North Carolina School of the Arts the home of uh, the president, who had not moved in yet to that home. Robert Ward and his wife, Mary. And so Mr. Barber lived for the better part of two semesters there, um, working on rewrites for Antony and Cleopatra, specifically um, to be a sort of scene for one woman, Cleopatra, about an hour's worth of music, I understand. I never saw the score. And he loved North Carolina. He loved the fact that we loved him. And I was lucky enough to sit in the studio and play all of the songs that he'd written multiple times for singers. When I look back on us, we were a motley crew. We didn't uh, have any kind of um, reason to expect that Samuel Barber 
would care for us, but he did. And I learned a great deal from him. He was, at that time, quiet. Um, sometimes visibly depressed, perhaps. I'm told he had a serious drinking problem during this time. But all I know is that he was all about the music. Um, and it was a very special time in the lives of many of us who were able to access him really quite finally. So the song we wanted to feature next is the first in Barber song group, Melodie Passagère. It's called Puisque tout passe, or Since All Things Pass Away. It was dedicated to Francis Poulenc and Pierre Bernac, and sets the French poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke, who of course was more typically known for his German writing. Um, can you talk to us about the dedication of these pieces? Was it just an homage, or is there a backstory? What else can you reveal? In fact, uh, Mr. Barber never wrote, never set anything uh, other than English except in these songs. And he was nervous, of course, about the prosody of the language. He knew that Poulenc and Bernac were in town uh, in about 1953, I think this was. This first song was first started in 1950. And he asked if they would come to Capricorn in Mount Kisco on a Sunday afternoon. He wanted to introduce them to the two songs that were finished and ready uh, to be viewed. To ask if Poulenc and Bernac thought he dared release them. And sure enough, they thought it was excellent work. There were no criticisms, no changes made. And they liked the pieces so much that they requested permission to be the premiering artists. So they did the first performance in Paris. They did the first performance later here in New York. And they actually recorded the works. Um, as Mr. Bernac later told me, he said, well, we didn't do them very much in Europe because, you know, the French, they don't want to hear American songs. <laughs> um, even if it was in French, I found that interesting. Um, but there was a special relationship uh, between Barber and Poulenc. I think they saw themselves as similar kinds of men in their own cultures. I'm curious if Barber's dealing with the French language in any way changed his compositional style. Did he create a more French sound? He said not. He said, you know, I'm American, I write American music, and I wrote American music to the French language. And maybe that's why he was a little nervous about it, um, because of the combination of the two. But certainly I find, when I look at the songs, that he leans towards melody. And that reminds me, I don't know how many of you know that the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia was brand new in or about the year of 1924, which is when Samuel Barber auditioned to go there and was accepted. Four years later, his friend Giancarlo Menotti came, and they were roommates and life friends and who knows what else uh, for the rest of their lives, um, with some great difficulty along the way eventually. But Mr. Barber is still, to my knowledge, the only triple major at the Curtis Institute voice, piano, composition. And he was serious about all of them. And eventually, when he reluctantly gave up the singing, it was only because he had so many commissions, he didn't have time to stay in shape. So I think that what he knew about French melody, yes, we see in these songs. 
Before we hear the song, uh, we'll, I'll read a translation in English. Since all is passing, let us make a passing melody. The one that quenches our thirst will be right for us. Let us sing what leaves us with love and art. Let us be swifter than the swift departure. Once again, we welcome Mary McKenzie back to the stage to sing this piece, and this time the pianist Lisa Stepanova. Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, and first performed by the beloved soprano Leontine Price. Leontine Price is often closely associated with the performance of Barber's songs because she premiered many of them. What can you tell us about their collaboration? Barber was introduced to Leontine Price uh, before she was beloved <laughs> because she was a young singer in New York. She had been known uh, at this time in the early 50s um, mostly for her portrayal as Bess in Porgy and Bess. And Barber was introduced to Miss Price by Miss Price's teacher, Florence Kimball, who taught at the Juilliard School, where Miss Price, in fact, studied. Um, but she studied with Miss Kimball for the rest of Miss Kimball's life. Um, Barber loved her voice, he loved her way with words. Samuel Barber was all about text. He grew up in a family who didn't have a television to go home to. He was a Victorian. They went home as a family and made music around the piano and with the violin. I can't remember who played the violin in their family, but somebody did. And uh, recited poetry. And when I knew him in the 60s, he could still hear a catchword. Somebody would say one little thing and it would set him off on a poem. He still had so many of them committed to memory. So everything was about the text for him, and he loved her way with words. He said, he was the first person who said to me something that I quote often, 
good singers identify color and motion in words and recognize the onomatopoeia, onomatopoeia in a word. Great singers, essentially, said Samuel Barber, pronounce a word in such a way that is not onomatopoeia, pronounce a word in such a way that it becomes onomatopoeic. So you, you have your way with the word, and that's what he felt that Miss Price had. So he adored her. In fact, she didn't premiere so many songs, but she is associated with him more than any other singer um, because she did premiere the Hermit songs, 10 songs, the most often sung songs from all of his uh, songs, um, and the Despite and Still, the next to the last song cycle that he wrote, or group of songs that he wrote, five songs. So she premiered 15 songs, sang many others of his songs, and they did a lot of touring together uh, in the early days of their relationship. So they became known as a team, uh, representing and introducing the country to his music. But also, don't forget, she was Cleopatra, and Antony and Cleopatra, so their names are intertwined uh, forever, and uh, were fast friends. We're about to hear two of the Hermit songs, and I just want to give a little introduction to the cycle. There, there are ten songs, and they're a setting of the words of Irish monks, words that these monks wrote on the margins of medieval manuscripts. Some of their words are profound, some of their words are profane, and you have a real play between those two extremes within the cycle. What do you think grabbed Barber's attention in this cycle, and what in general grabbed his attention from his other poetic choices? Well, everything was personal to him, and it became increasingly so as he aged. The optimism of sure on this shiny night um, to the passing melody, since all things pass, let us make our melody, because he understood fleeting time. Um, I believe that um, he chose poetry that was difficult because he loved to spar with it. He chose poetry that he honored in terms of composition and form. And later in his life, he chose poetry that was more open, sometimes blatant, than he as a man could be, because he would have wished to have been able to do that himself. Uh, Mary Mackenzie and Janice Kathleen Tagg performed two excerpts from the Hermit Songs, number four, The Heavenly Banquet, and number five, The Crucifixion. Thank you. 
talk about Despite and Still, Opus 41, the Oxford Musical, um, the Oxford Music article on Samuel Barber describes the cycle written for Leontine Price as having profound biographical significance that probes themes of loneliness, lost love, and isolation. Margot, you mentioned earlier already that by 1967, 1968, that Barber was um, broken from the experience of Antony and Cleopatra. How did that play itself out in his life as a composer? Well, at first he was very bitter, and you hear it in some of the choice of poetry. And depressed, angry, all of that is in the choice of poetry to come. But I guess I didn't realize it until later this afternoon when we were talking about an actual orchestral work, maybe the last solo vocal work he wrote called The Lovers. Uh, this was a text that he would not have been able to utter himself as a human being, but he took great joy in its venom and in its openness. Uh, it's a story of gay love. He would have never allowed himself to have written this piece earlier, um, to have set the text. So I think that as he was losing his anger in the late 60s, he gained in depression and maybe gained an anger to the point that one day he just simply sort of opened himself up, became more himself. If he was angry, you knew it. If he was sad, you knew it. Um, so in a certain sense, I think that was healing, probably, everything I've read. And of course, you can imagine that I've pieced all this together over the years because of a very finite, short amount of time in which I observed the man with a magnifying glass as much as I listened to what he had to say about his songs. I did also know him uh, briefly in 1974 when the Juilliard School presented the much rewritten Antony and Cleopatra. And Menotti directed a whole different ball game than Zeffirelli, and the young James Conlon, who was pr probably still a student then at Juilliard, was entrusted uh, with the conductorship. So, does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. How about his compositional style? Did it develop or change? I don't know that I think it changed that much, but I think he was very, um, he was considered conservative by standards from the get-go, from his 1938 song, um, Sure on the Shiny Knife, but I don't think he changed that much, except that in the last pieces, in Despite and Still, in the Opus 45, which we'll hear two from tonight, and in the orchestral uh, piece, The Lovers, I feel that while there's much more dissonance and much less um, rhythmic sense, much less tightly drawn, there are still evidences, not as many, 
of the kind of um, canonic, what did I call it this afternoon, canonic um, expression from one voice to the other that he was so known for, that seems to go away, or he seems to write more episodically. He'll start something and then he just won't quite finish it. But I wouldn't say he changed. I would say he got older. <laughs> the text for the song we're about to hear uh, is written by James Joyce, and it's from his book, Ulysses. It's particularly murky, and I, everybody knows about this text as being extremely difficult. Can you shed just a little bit of light on this before we hear the song? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with the story of Ulysses, even if you can follow it. Um, what it does have to do with is an impression of a character in Ulysses at a particular point. And I believe that what attracted Barber to this, to set, was simply um, a kind of, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And yet everything matters. He sets this to a tango. So it's a very sensual piece. This is new for him. He was good at sounding like the church, making his piano parts sound like the organ. He was good at writing about the Renaissance, and he would imitate things that harkened back to prior times, but a tango, mm -hmm. unusual for him. So um, Barber said to me um, this many years later, because it wasn't written, although I, he played through this for us um, at school, I realized many years later, before it was printed um, and sang through it. He didn't understand this poem nor did he understand Nuvoletta, for those of you who've struggled with that wonderful poem. He didn't understand them. He didn't think that he had to understand them. He had to love them. I think that's one reason he and Poulenc fell kinship, because Poulenc, you know, was not a highly skilled, highly educated composer. Um, Barber, on the other hand, was highly educated, but felt that his goals were simple, and um, Poulenc responded to that tremendously in him, and that Barber would say such a thing publicly was delicious, I'm sure, to Poulenc. Please welcome Michael Kelly to the stage, and Kathleen Tag to the piano. This is Solitary Hotel, the fourth song of Despite and Still.
military hotel of papers. of just getting something out there. I also hear anger in that. I don't know about any of you, but I, I hear anger in that piece. And this afternoon, I said to Michael, I had never quite heard it sung the way he sang it, and at the end, I had a completely different take on it. Queens. I think that was something for Mr. Barber. I would even be willing to go on record as saying, maybe he chose this poem because he got to say the word queen because that's who he was, and that's where he was coming from, and he was evolving. And of course, he didn't live long enough to know that if you had added hope to that, <laughs> and you lived in our culture, you might have something different. <laughs> I think he would have loved that. I think he would have loved it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Those accidental things that delighted him. He was a very sharp wit, by the way, very sharp wit. And that wit hid his sadness and his depression. Um, so that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Lastly, we are going to hear two songs from Barber's Opus 45, uh, a group of actually three songs, and the last group that he wrote. They are settings of translations by celebrated writers. Um, Opus 45 was commissioned by the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and was first performed uh, at Alex Kelly Hall 
uh, by German baritone Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau and pianist Charles Wadsworth. These songs are gorgeous, uh, especially Obama's Boundless Evening, his last, but they're very difficult. Um, can you talk about the challenges to the performance? I'm sure my performance, <laughs> <laughs> although he sings them beautifully. Um, it is very hard to make this first song, Now I Have Fed and Eaten Up the Rose, to make it understood. And I remember the class in which Menaki, years after uh, Barbara's death, uh, was giving a master class and a duo sang that song and he turned around to the audience and said, did you get that? You know, and I don't remember what the reaction was. So he asked them to sing it again. And once again, he turned around and said, did you get that? And there evidently wasn't enough reaction, although there was more, and so he had them sing it the third time. And he never did make commentary. Um, as I thought about that this afternoon, since we met, I think maybe what that was was the word and the music will speak for itself if we listen. And um, indeed they will, but they're very difficult. Um, I think I don't know a harder song than O Boundless Evening. The phrase lengths are ridiculously long. Um, and the melodic rise and fall is awkward. It's not going to sound that way to you, but that's what it is. And yet, I feel that the kind of song he wrote um, here in O Boundless, Boundless Evening is the sister and completes the circle to the song written 35 years or more or less before, Through on the Shining Night, which is also one of the most difficult songs in the entire Mazurka repertoire. Deceptively so, simple. Deceptively simple. So did he ever change? I don't think so. <laughs> Momentarily, but not really. Michael, would you like to come back to the stage and lead us? These are the first and third songs of Opus 45. Now I have fed and eaten up the rose and O Boundless Evening.
could stay here uh, all evening and keep talking. Um, I think it's time to thank everyone, and I want to start with the performers. Thank you to Mary and to Michael and to Lisa and to Kathleen. Thank you so much for being here, and your performing is absolutely beautiful. I know you have a gala coming up for Song Fusion. Did you want to tell us a little about that? Uh, sure, I can. Michael speaking. Um, <laughs> hello, man's voice. <laughs> Um, yes, we have our uh, annual gala coming up on November 30th, and it's kind of spectacular. We've completed our first season and uh, just begun our second, and it's really exciting for us particularly to sort of uh, say thank you to everyone that's made it possible for us, and we just like to present a little uh, bit of food and wine and, and fun songs uh, that showcase what we've done so far and some upcoming things. So come if you can, we'd love to see you there. It's www.songfusion.org. Our greatest thanks goes to Margot Garrett, of course, who has been so incredibly gracious with her time this evening. Thank you so much. To our host, Mikhail Alak, whose wonderful apartment we are sitting in here in Harlem. If you're ever in New York City and need to record or have photos taken or host a live podcast, <laughs> this is your place. So you can find more information about uh, Studio 113 Productions on his Facebook page. I'd also like to wholeheartedly thank the Casement Fund, of course. The people there are the brains and brawn of this new endeavor. This would never happen without the dedication of people who are willing to really commit to this kind of adventure. Um, yeah, thank you. producer, Matthew Principe, our podcast would not sound tidy if it weren't for you. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the very first live Sparks and Wiry Cries. Thanks for tuning in.